Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, November 15th, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Melissa Topshire with today's headlines. The Supreme Court publishes its first ever code of conduct. A poll shows Trump beating Biden in the Electoral College. Biden and Xi collaborate to crack down on fentanyl. Liberians vote in a tight presidential runoff. Nations gather in Kenya to hammer out a treaty on plastic pollution. U.S. inflation hits a two-year low. Nepal bans TikTok due to its alleged effect on social harmony. And two Kentucky Ford plants reject a labor agreement. In our first story, the Supreme Court releases a new code of conduct. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Voice of America. The Associated Press, CNBC, BBC News, CBS, and Politico. The U.S. Supreme Court on Monday revealed its first formal code of conduct, following scrutiny concerning the ethics of behavior by justices on America's highest court. In a statement released with the code, the nine justices claimed that the purpose of the document was to dispel the misunderstanding that members of Supreme Court's bench are unrestricted by any ethics rules. The 14-page document contains five canons of conduct asking judges to uphold integrity and independence, avoid impropriety and the appearance of impropriety, perform duties fairly, impartially, and diligently, engage in extrajudicial activities consistent with the obligations of the office, and refrain from political activity. Until Monday, all federal judges bar Supreme Court justices had been held to a code of conduct since 1973. Supreme Court's new code, however, lacks an enforcement mechanism, and so justices must voluntarily adhere to its rules. The Supreme Court had faced pressure to implement a code of conduct following the ProPublica report that Justice Clarence Thomas hadn't disclosed several travel arrangements, vacations, and purchases from Republican donor Harlan Crow. A three-page ethics statement was also released in April this year. A further ProPublica report also found Justice Samuel Alito to be the recipient of an unreported private jet trip from GOP donor Paul Singer in 2008. Both justices deny the necessity for their actions to have been disclosed at the time. Well, on this program, we separate the spin from the facts. Melissa just gave us the facts on this story. And now for the narrative spin, starting with the Democratic narrative from The Nation. There's no reason to celebrate the Supreme Court's self-imposed code of ethics. A lack of an enforcement mechanism leaving judges to decide whether they have violated their own rules means that in reality nothing has changed. Language by the justices accusing America of misunderstanding what many view as clear cases of public corruption portrays arrogance and pressure must continue to be applied in order for real reform to occur. The Federalist gives us a Republican narrative. The Supreme Court's reforms will never be able to go far enough to appease the left, which has launched a sustained campaign to undermine the court's every move and diminish its power. In an effort to delegitimize the nation's highest courts, Democrats and their media allies have been trying to gin up controversy about conservative justices who dare to rule against their woke social agenda. Caving to their outlandish demands will only further incentivize them. And from time to time, we have statistics-based nerd narratives brought to us by the Metaculous Prediction community. They predict a 5% chance that a U.S. Supreme Court justice will be impeached or removed before 2030. When I used to work in the athletic department at a uh, a public university, 
and there was all these things they called them compliance. There could be violation NCAA athletics violations if you know students athletes talk to agents or all these different things, and you know you weren't allowed to have boosters. You know people who donated to the athletic department could only donate so much, and all these different things. And the rule was for us as as administrators or employees, you just can't accept any gifts. You can't do anything. Just don't do it because anything might be construed as being something that's not supposed to be happening, even if that's not what it actually is. I'm surprised. I mean, if, if I'm a Supreme Court justice and they're like, hey, do you want this free um, private jet? Like, I would be worried. Wouldn't you be worried? Like, how is this going to look, even if it really is just an innocent gift? I agree with you. I mean, I feel like that's a good, like, I think that's a pretty good baseline to say no gifts at all. And if you really still want to be a Supreme Court justice, then you're going to sign off that you're okay with that. Right, you, right. Santa will never come visit you again. And if there's a thing where, oh, well, maybe we need to pay these Supreme Court justices a little bit more. I don't even know what they make, but maybe we need to do that to, to, to make it so that they can, you know, whatever it takes. This is the, this is the Supreme Court. You know, yeah. we've got to make it so these people are above reproach and, you know, don't need to accept weird stuff. I mean, I can't, I don't want to pay for a bunch of private jet rides for Clarence Thomas or whatever, but, uh, you know, we can do, if, we need to look at it. I feel like, or they should be declaring these things like, okay, my friend, a good family friend of mine has a ski chalet and I want to use it. And I'm a Supreme Court justice. I'm going to fill out yeah. a form and let everybody know that I'm doing this thing. The fact that it's coming out weirdly, I think is part of the problem that it's yeah. like popping up. Right. Just to just be a little more transparent would, would yeah. give people more ease. Yeah. Because like I want a Supreme Court justice to be able to use their uncle's like beach house. Like that's cool. But right. we got to figure it out. A poll shows Trump winning the Electoral College while losing the popular vote to Biden. Here are the facts as agreed upon by the New York Post, Newsweek and Forbes. The latest Stack Data Strategy poll published Monday and conducted between October 13th and November 3rd shows U.S. shows former U.S. President Donald Trump defeating current President Joe Biden in the Electoral College vote by a margin of 292 to 246. The poll also shows Biden would defeat Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, a candidate for the GOP nomination, 359 to 179. But Trump would also defeat Vice President Kamala Harris, 311 to 227, and Democratic California Governor Gavin Newsom, 319 to 219. In a hypothetical Newsom versus Trump matchup, the poll showed the governor losing Maine, Michigan, Nevada, and New Hampshire, all states Biden won in 2020. Meanwhile, Harris was projected to lose to Trump overall, but was able to take Maine and Nevada. These results come after a recent Bloomberg Morning Consult poll found Trump defeating Biden in six of seven battleground states, regardless of whether a third-party candidate was in the race, with Trump leading in Georgia, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, Nevada, Arizona, and North Carolina in that poll. This polling also comes after Democrats recently secured several statewide wins, including Ohioans voting for a constitutional amendment codifying abortion rights and Virginians giving full legislative control to the party. Those were the facts, and we have some political narratives on this one. We'll start with an anti-Trump narrative from the New York Times. Although it's scary to imagine Trump's return to the White House, these recent surveys, a year out from the election, don't reflect a resounding Trump win, and their predictions are easily avoided. 
Biden may take a hit if certain non-white younger voters decide not to vote, but all he has to do is motivate the traditional Democratic base and his second term will be safe. And the pro-Trump narrative from the Washington Examiner. Biden is on a rapid decline while Trump is on the upswing. This poll, unlike a sea of others, shows Democrats still don't understand their voters' desires, let alone the resurging significance of Trump's base. And Democrats should be even more concerned if a third-party candidate stays in the race until the end. And we have a nerd narrative from Metaculus saying there's a 45% chance that Trump would win a 2024 presidential election matchup with Biden. This Trump thing is is truly one of the most, you know, like we uh, we look back and people, oh, can you believe Millard Fillmore, the, the teapot dome scandal or all these different weird things that we yeah. you know learned about? And it's like, well, that was a million years ago, all this weird stuff. I think yeah. this whole Trump thing, however this ends up going, is going to be one of those things that gets talked about forever. It's just it's just going to be baked in. What is this? What does it mean? What does it mean for the people that like him? What does it mean for the people that don't like him? It's yeah. a, you know, the word phenomena gets bandied about a lot. It's kind of a phenomenon, right? This is, it's, it it's, is. It's, phenomenon has kind of a positive connotation, but it's something that can't be fully understand. That's, but it nonetheless is happening in front of us. It's a phenomenon. Yeah. Like, what is this? A huge shortcoming of Obama was that he didn't set up people behind him that were ready to come in. And I don't know mm-hmm. why. Maybe there was no one good, but he had such sway in the in the political and social arena at one time. It still does. To for, but he really had a lot of sway, and he could have kissed in a few people. Like, hey, here's someone come. Like, I can't remember a single person that he put forward that like, hey, yeah, this is a new guy. And, and like in my mind, that was part of his job, especially in his second term. Yeah. You know, he should be setting up, and we were left with. Biden, who was his vice president, wasn't was supposed to be on a retirement tour. Like the fact that Biden even yeah. had, had to run is a failure. Like there should yes. have been, and Biden didn't even want to run. You know, no. in 2016, he didn't. Like, I don't want to do this. Like, okay, I, I guess I retire. have to. Right, I'm, <laughs> and he's right. Like, there's no bench. Like, what happened? I, I don't. Uh, there, you're telling me, and there was a safe now. If even if I was a good person that was on the way up, I wouldn't want to tangle with Trump. But like, yeah. but but. Ten years ago, I feel like there was an opportunity. There was clear skies for Obama to kiss a few people in. And there should have been three or four people that we all kind of know about that's that are coming up. Um, yeah. And there I can't I, I really am trying to th- I can't think of one. There's nobody. That's a really good point. Like it just it just and, you know, was it just too toxic of an environment to get anyone, you know, to prime the next generation? I don't know. I guess. But if anyone would have had the sway, it was Obama 10 years ago. Like, yeah. right. I mean. Unless you just can't ever do it. I don't know. I mean, uh, that's a good good point. I never thought about that. In a new report, Biden and Xi will announce a deal to crack down on fentanyl. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Forbes, Bloomberg, CNN, The Financial Times, Reuters and The New York Post. U.S. President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart Xi Jinping will reportedly announce a new deal to crack down on the manufacturing and trade of fentanyl-producing chemicals at their summit meeting in San Francisco on Wednesday. Bloomberg News reported, citing people familiar with the negotiations, that Beijing would target companies producing the drug and exporting its precursor chemicals in exchange for China's Institution of Forensic Science allegedly involved in human rights abuses in Xinjiang. 
to be taken off U.S. blacklist. The agreement, which has yet to be finalized, has been a priority for the Biden administration ahead of the first meeting between the two leaders in a year. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan stressed Monday that combating the fentanyl trade was among areas where the interests of both the U.S. and China align. Though China has previously sought to suppress the production and export of fentanyl, companies adapted to sell precursor chemicals, which also have legitimate uses, to Mexico, as Beijing had refused to limit that trade. According to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the rate of overdose deaths related to the opioid crisis more than tripled from 2016 through 2021. Fentanyl, known for being up to 50 times stronger than heroin, is increasingly combined with other illicit drugs, often leading to fatalities. The fentanyl crisis has affected multiple American cities, including San Francisco, where the upcoming summit will be held. Mayor London Breed has blamed the drug for its major impact on the city, including aggravating its homelessness crisis. Thanks, Melissa. We have some narrative spin, starting with the anti-China narrative from Daily Mail. After years of allowing the flow of precursor chemicals to Mexican cartels to fuel the fentanyl crisis that has decimated multiple American cities, Xi Jinping has apparently agreed to clean his own mess. And while this agreement is certainly a positive breakthrough, it's vital to understand that Beijing will stop enforcing the fentanyl deal if Washington ever criticizes Xi or the Chinese Communist Party. Here's the pro-China narrative from Global Times. Hopefully, the U.S. seems to have come to its senses after unreasonably imposing sanctions on Chinese institutions and individuals that were allegedly connected to the U.S. homemade fentanyl crisis. Progress was made when both countries cooperated in good faith, so it would be great news if Washington finally decided to restore cooperation in the arena of drug control. And a nerd narrative from Attaculus, there's a 6% chance that if World War III happens before 2060, the U.S. and China will be on the same side. I'm trying to think of like what that 6% would be, because that even seems a little high to me, because even because then you would have if U.S. and China were on the same side. And there's an actual World War Three. You have to stack up basically the whole rest of the world against them to make it like a fight because those are the two strongest countries. You think that six percent is there's a chess move, you know, 2000 moves ahead that right. no one could have predicted because of this one weird thing that no one could have predicted. Right. So we're, the, so they're the volcano exploded at this time. Right. There's a butterfly effect of somehow we here we are on the same side. Right. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, the uh, when Homer, you mentioned Homer Simpson, Homer was fighting the heavyweight champion in a boxing match. Mo said to him when they're in the locker room beforehand. So, you know, Homer, you have to visualize how you're going to win. And then Homer visualizes, and and there's a you know his his mind's eye, and a congenital heart defect has felled the champion moments before he stepped into the ring. Like, okay, that's how it would happen if you were going to (laughs) win. Like, (laughs) right, right, right. Okay, that so that's what you're saying. It's the congenital heart defect of some kind of a thing is what that six percent is. That that's that's right. Uh, exactly. Blinken acknowledges State Department dissent over Gaza. Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNN, Reuters, The Washington Post, and The Guardian. In a department-wide email sent on Monday, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken acknowledged the growing dissent within his ranks over President Joe Biden's administration's handling of the war in Gaza. 
Following a nine-day trip across the Middle East and Asia, Blinken moved to quell the backlash over Biden's pledge to stand by Israel following the Hamas October 7th attack. Up to 11,000 people have so far died in Israel's response, according to Gaza's health ministry, reportedly prompting hundreds of State Department employees to publicly and privately call for an immediate ceasefire. According to reporting from Reuters, at least three complaints have been made using the department's internal dissent channel, a mechanism set up in the wake of the Vietnam War that allows diplomats to anonymously voice concerns directly to the Secretary of State. In response, Blinken's department-wide email acknowledged that some staff may disagree with approaches we are taking, but encouraged them to continue having candid discussions with teams and managers, adding, We're listening. What you share is informing our policy and our messages. Recipients of the email included employees of the U.S. Agency for International Development, where over 1,000 people have publicly endorsed a ceasefire. Meanwhile, on Tuesday, over 500 political appointees and staff members from around 40 federal agencies submitted a letter to Biden condemning the Hamas October 7th attack, which reportedly killed at least 1,400 people, many of them civilians, while echoing the same criticisms that Blinken sought to address in his email. Meanwhile, the Center for Constitutional Rights, a New York civil liberties group, on Monday filed a lawsuit against Biden, Blinken, and Secretary of Defense Lloyd Austin accusing them of complicity in what the suit alleges is genocide in Gaza. According to the 1948 convention, genocide is defined as the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group as such. Thank you, Scott. Here's the pro-establishment narrative from Archide. One of the strengths of the State Department is its diversity of views, which staff are always encouraged to continuously make known. Secretary Blinken and upper management are listening to those views which will be used to inform the State Department's policy decisions. The Biden administration wants to support its ally Israel while also maintaining a safe future for the Palestinian people. The Intercept brings us an establishment critical narrative. In aiding and abetting Israeli attacks on Gaza, which U.N. officials have already warned may breach international law, the U.S. may be just as legally culpable if they provide direct military support. Some argue those crimes reach the threshold of genocide. The U.S. needs to rethink its current stance and call for an immediate ceasefire. And here's Narrative C from Heretz. While the death toll on both sides of the conflict are horrendous, There's no evidence that Israel is committing genocide. Playing fast and loose with the term is a dangerous maneuver that not only waters down the horrors of genocide, but also acts as a distraction that risks escalating the conflict's global spillover. And Metaculus has a say on this as well, with this nerd narrative predicting a 50% chance that Israel will lift the blockade on electricity, food, gasoline, and medicine in Gaza by January of 2024. Gabon's military junta announces elections for August of 2025. Here are the facts as agreed upon by DW, Africa News, New Vision Official, EWN, BBC News, and France 24. Gabon's military ruler, who ousted President Ali Bongo Ondimba in August after a disrupted election, announced on Monday plans to hold elections in August 2025 based on a timetable that initially calls for a national dialogue next year. Presidential and parliamentary elections will be conducted as part of an indicative transition to a civilian government that must be approved in April 2024 
at a national conference involving all the country's vital actors. A spokesperson for the military government said live on state TV. Under the proposed roadmap for restoring civilian rule, the interim parliament will be transformed into a constituent assembly in early June 2024. By the end of that year, a draft constitution is expected to be put to a referendum. Since the deposition of Ali Bongo, who had ruled Gabon since 2009, extending his family's dynasty to 55 years, on claims of election fraud and widespread corruption, the West African nation has been led by self-proclaimed transitional government under General Bryce Olagui Nguema. While members of the military junta are reportedly barred from running in the proposed election, the transitional charter allows General Olagui Nguema to do so. Yet it remains unclear whether he intends to do so. The U.S. officially stated last month that the military takeover in Gabon had been a coup a conclusion that legally requires Washington to end non-humanitarian assistance to the oil-rich country. The State Department has called on the interim government to take concrete measures to establish democratic rule in order to resume aid. All right, thanks for that update, Melissa. Voice of America brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Monday's announcement of a roadmap to return to constitutional order in Gabon is good news. The U.S. welcomes that Nguema appears to be honoring his commitment to restore civilian rule. If Libreville makes further progress toward democracy, the suspension of aid might be reconsidered. However, in addition to democratic elections, the military leaders must also address the country's economic and social woes. Washington will follow the process closely and continue to stand in solidarity with the Gabonese people in their struggle for democracy. The establishment critical narrative comes from Al Jazeera. While the so-called international community demands elections in Gabon, it often ignores the origins of military coups in Africa. Ali Bongo's rule was by no means democratic, and his overthrow was supported by large parts of the population, frustrated by the lack of any democratic dividend. Former colonial powers such as France are also paying a role by supporting dubious elections and incompetent leaders in order to maintain their influence. People want democracy, but most of all, they hope for an improvement in their living conditions. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 1% chance that France will send its military to intervene in the Gabonese coup in 2023. Liberians vote in a tight presidential runoff. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, BBC News, Africa News, Liberian Observer, Gallup, and Front Page Africa. Liberian voters headed to polls on Tuesday for the presidential runoff between incumbent President George Way and former Vice President Joseph Bokai, who finished the first-round election with a difference of just 7,126 votes. This comes after neither the former international soccer star Way nor his repeat challenger Bokai got an outright majority last month, securing 43.8% and 43.4% of the total, respectively. The winner will be sworn into office in January next year. Over 2.4 million citizens were registered to cast their ballot in polling stations from 8 o'clock a.m. to 6 o'clock p.m. local time. While the Electoral Commission has to publish results within 15 days, the vote counting is expected to take less time. Voter turnout on Tuesday was reportedly low across the country despite the October 10th first round having the highest turnout in post-war Liberia's history at 78.86 percent, 
as runoff elections in Liberia typically fail to capture the enthusiasm of the first round. The presidential election is considered a referendum on Wei's leadership since taking office in 2018. The latest Gallup poll conducted before the first round of voting found his job approval rating at 54 percent, down from 65 percent last year. According to the latest statement of the West Africa Network for Peacebuilding Election Situation Room, the general atmosphere has been peaceful, with a few isolated clashes and delays to open polling centers. And we'll begin this round with Narrative A from African Arguments. Following empty promises and an unsuccessful first term as president, it's time for way to go. A poor economy and unchecked corruption remain Liberia's primary concern six years later. And Wei has only shown that he's not adept at finding solutions to these problems. As the threat of military coups continues to loom over many West African states, Liberia must use its democratic autonomy to vote for positive change instead of the status quo. And Front Page Africa brings narrative B. Though Wei's first term in office may not have been exceptional, he succeeded in maintaining both the country's political and macroeconomic stability. He has also improved security with little to no external support, contributed to regional peace, and consistently passed the Millennium Challenge corporate scorecards. Additionally, he's the only candidate who has the strength and energy to heal the nation from polarization. Nations negotiate a plastics treaty in Kenya. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Times of India, The Independent, ABC News, and The Guardian. Nations gathered in Nairobi, Kenya on Monday for the first day of talks to finalize the first ever agreement to contain plastic pollution ahead of the deadline by the end of this year. The treaty is expected to become legally binding by the end of 2024. More than 2,000 representatives are attending the meeting, including agents from the oil and gas industry, environmental organizations, and civil society groups. The third round of talks, due to conclude Sunday, will consider adopting policies outlined in a draft text of the treaty, which was issued in September. This comes as a group of nations led by Norway and Rwanda are calling for a reduction in global plastic production and restrictions on the chemicals used to make them in an effort to end plastic pollution by 2040. Saudi Arabia, in contrast, is leading a group of countries with large petroleum industries that oppose cutting plastic production and instead emphasize recycling and waste management. Plastic is largely made from crude oil and natural gas. A 2022 Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development study projects that plastic waste will triple by 2060, with around 50% ending up in landfills and less than 20% being recycled. Thanks, Melissa. NPR Online News brings us Narrative A. The fossil fuel industry has a track record of slowing environmental action, and this time won't be any different. As plastics are crucial for its bottom line, it's no surprise that the corporate world is pushing for recycling over production cuts, an effort that studies have shown does not work. While these negotiations are an admirable effort, finding a balance between what should be done and appeasing global oil leaders like Saudi Arabia won't be easy. Mother Jones brings us Narrative B. The world is reaching its global saturation point, and something must be done, particularly as it's the poor who bear the brunt of plastic pollution. Rich nations have long sent their waste to be thrown away or recycled abroad, and studies show that the quantities involved are grossly underestimated. The havoc this takes on the health of people in poor nations is untold. The negotiations in Nairobi must be finalized. 
I wonder what the effect of plastic, which to me is like the most effective way to store and preserve food, um, has like the, the global footprint, the carbon footprint of how much food, plastic and, you know, Tupperware, plastic wrap, things like that, packaging yeah. saves versus how much it loses. Yeah, I'd be interested in knowing what the breakdown on that is. Oh, how much plastic helps save food from being wasted? Right. So then versus how much how wasteful plastic is. Right. Right. So does it is it a net negative because, you know, like my sandwich is going to last twice as long because it's wrapped in plastic as opposed to, you know, leaving it out or wrapping it in burlap or whatever. Um, yeah. So they, I, I don't think that's longer. apples. Ap- I don't think it's apples apples because you can put your 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 sandwich in a metal tin or you could put it in a glass container. I could, but I, I didn't. So. <laughs> 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 well, I, I just think it loses that the bottom falls out of that argument. Problem. I think there's a way to use like I think now for if these narratives are any uh, indication, this issue, believe it or not, has been politicized. And ironically, the well has been poisoned with this plastic argument. <laughs> um, but so I don't think they're even talking about the same thing anymore. Like, I think there's a place for plastic, clearly. Well, if it weren't if if, if the disposable plastic industry weren't so huge. Like even if that were managed, it would be better. And I think I might have even mentioned on this on on this podcast before that there's a woman who's developing uh, plastic film, like your plastic wrap, your saran yeah. wrap, or you know your cellophane wrap, out of kelp because kelp uh, right. de- like breaks down like so much faster than even corn. Plastics made out of corn, right? Uh, and there's so much of it you're never gonna. It's like it's just a, an endless resource of kelp in the ocean. Yeah. yeah, and also you know if it gets into your food, it's gonna give you vitamins instead of cancer. Right, you know? right. <laughs> it's like, which is which it is melting in the microwave when you put that you know that uh, pastrami back in the microwave at work, mm. whatever. You get those little pieces of plastic in there. I don't know. Well, that's when the I other was... thing I worry about the disposable plastic industry, like. They made these plastics that partially break down in the ocean. Now we have all these microplastics. So we yeah. kind of made it worse. Yeah. You know, like, okay, I've, I mandate we get these plastics to break down a little faster. Okay, cool. But now they've broken down into little pieces and now we're eating them. It was yeah, better now, now they're before. in our bloodstream. Right. It was yeah. better before when they didn't break down. I feel like they've we always screw everything up so royally. Like- <laughs> we we like take the 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 letter of the law. You want this plastic to break down more easily than before. You got it, boss. Okay. Well, I kind of meant for it to break down all the way, not just go into yeah. my genetic code. Thank right. you for that. Right. Then he's like, well, and it's not possible for it actually to just disappear. Mm, That's well, the problem. But you know, the it's not doing any good in your closet. Of these things is criminal. Like these like crappy plastic coffee makers and stuff that only work for a year. Yeah. Like a. They don't work that good. The coffee tastes weird, tastes like plastic. It's not working. Yeah. People are throwing them out. They don't even work. It's not like, oh, it's just, no, it's going to be really good for a year. Like, it's not even good. And then it doesn't work after a year. And then you have to throw it away and buy another one. Like, that, I feel like we could, we could cut out a lot of this problem. Like, before we start making people get their IVs out of uh, flax uh, uh, gunny sacks instead of plastic, let's... <laughs> Let's figure out, like, can you just build a coffee maker uh, out of metal and glass, please? And that's like actually works. And then let's move forward from there. You know, like, it's called a French press. 
Sure, whatever, or or a, a, a good Mister Coffee, just not one that's gonna that's you know the so many appliances so that people can make more money are are planned obsolete. I mean, people even yes. talk about fast fashion. You know, yep. like we're gonna make these shirts and they're gonna you need to they're super cheap. You can get them in six months. They're gonna be out of style in a year. They're gonna be in the garbage. Like, yeah. oh my gosh! And because you have such good. a short attention span, you know. You're going to want a new one next year. Yep. At, at and the they latest. have to be, and they're in bad, they don't last because they're not made quality. They're not supposed to last because they're also out of fashion. And they have to be made in a sweatshop somewhere to be made that quickly and cheaply. So it's just like the worst all the way around. And everyone looks like crap anyway. So, like, geez. I just cleaned, helped clean out my grandmother's house. She, they've been there since 1967. Wow. She, she left Japan. She made it through World War II. With her brothers on her back, she left Japan at 21 to get married to an American uh, in the Navy. And Mm -hmm. so it's this that mentality, right? There's that survivor mentality of like, I'm still surviving. I can't throw this thing away or that thing away. And yet the thing she had, like she used them until they like they're they were still there. Like there is this old huge hunk of metal. Um, of steel tape dispenser for masking tape that I so wanted to bring home if it weren't so heavy. But, you know, it's like that tape dispenser is not going to break ever. It's been there since the 50s. It will outlive us all. Right. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, the stuff just worked so much better. And also they knew they just made it work with less. Like it was just a different world, right? Like you just didn't have a lot. And all of your neighbors didn't have a lot. And it was like, yeah, you're making your own clothes and so is your neighbor making your own clothes. Oh, that's a cute pattern you got to make your own clothes. Not all I can afford is the latest fast fashion that's coming straight from China that's going to last you probably two months or one wash before it falls apart. Right. Great. Maybe you only have three dresses, but you made them yourself and they're made out of material that's not going to just rip. Yeah. Yeah. Different times, man. It's just it's weird to see where we've come like going through this time portal you know last weekend of like of into the 60s and beyond and just remembering how people used to live is like it's i don't look forward to people going through not just my stuff personally but like our generation stuff like of all the plastic junk we have like you know there's not going to be anything anyone wants it's like there's not going to be a cool old thing like our cool old stuff is going to be Oh, this Keurig machine is disgusting. Like, what's happening? Like, why are we doing this? <laughs> like, a lot of it's going to be junk. This Because also, a lot of us are keeping our cruddy. I have so many, you know, glad packages that are supposed to be one use and we keep them, you know, like, or things like that. And it's like, oh, like the like the lunch meat sandwich. Yeah, yeah. So like yeah. we have a bunch of those and those aren't supposed to be something you keep. Those are supposed to be floating in the ocean somewhere, choking right. the fish. And, um, so, but like we have, we just, I, you know, a lot of people, myself included, like the scarcity mindset, like if you get rid of this, you'll never be able to get it again. Um, it's just so damaging. It's just not, it's like we have a, the wrong mindset for our time or something. We, we took like the worst impulses from the old, like depression, scarcity mindset. Cause we like waste stuff. But then we keep the stupid stuff. Hey, something's precious. Hang on to it. Don't waste money. Don't whatever. Like we're not doing it right. We're doing it like backwards. October inflation hits a two-year low. Here are the facts. 
as agreed upon by The Wall Street Journal, CNBC, USA Today, and The New York Times. The U.S. Consumer Price Index, or CEI, slowed to 3.2% year-over-year last month, down from 3.7% in September and the lowest inflation rate since July. The core measure of inflation, which leaves out fuel and food prices, dropped to 4% year-over-year, which was also lower than both the previous month and economists' predictions. While food prices were up 3.3% year-over-year as they continue to moderate, energy prices fell 4.5% from October 2022, including a 21% decline in fuel oil, 16% in natural gas, and 5% in gasoline. Other items that cheapened included major appliances dropping 10%, smartphones 12%, and eggs 22% while sports tickets, car insurance, and car repair rose 25%, 19%, and 15% respectively. The Bureau of Labor Statistics report also showed new vehicles costing 0.1% less month over month, while used vehicles declined by 0.8% and were down 7.1% from a year prior. Airfare 2 dropped 0.9% on the month and 13.2% on the year. As a sign of the Federal Reserve's interest rate hikes, working to correct the supply-demand imbalance, non-farm payrolls in October jumped by just 150000 while real average hourly earnings adjusted for inflation jumped 0.2% on the month and 0.8% on the year. While economists expect GDP to slow considerably, the GDP also rose in the third quarter at a 4.9% annual rate. In the wake of the news, the Nasdaq, S&P 500, and Dow Jones stock indexes were up solidly on Tuesday. As Treasury yields dropped, bond prices rose strongly. This comes as the Fed, which has raised interest rates from nearly zero to 5.25% since March 2022, is now debating whether another quarter-point rate hike is necessary. Many economists and investors now believe the final rate bump is unlikely. Thank you, Scott. Here's the Republican narrative from Fox News. While cooling inflation is good news to the average American, this news should not get Joe Biden's hopes up. Everyone from corporate economists to the average voter, 80% of whom currently think the economy is either fair or poor, is very aware of our high gas prices, grocery prices, and national debt. There are many reasons Biden is now lagging behind Trump in the polls, but the economic situation is going to be the hardest to distance himself from. And the Washington Post brings us the Democratic spin. While Americans haven't been able to separate Biden from their past two years of inflationary struggles quite yet, the fact is that the national economy has been roaring back quarter after quarter to the tune of rising employment, family net worths, and union worker wages, the last of which will play an important role for the president when facing off against Trump, who has historically performed well with blue-collar voters. As economic stress continues to lessen, Biden and his Bidenomics will be in a much better spot heading into the 2024 race. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus says there's a 20% chance that the U.S. will enter a recession before 2024. Nepal bans TikTok, citing an effect on social harmony. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Guardian, Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Hindu, and The Hindustan Times. Nepal announces a ban on the popular video-sharing platform TikTok on Monday, alleging the Chinese-owned app was disrupting social harmony in the country. 
According to Minister for Communications and Information Technology Rekha Sharma, Nepal's cabinet banned TikTok as it was being used to share content that disrupts family structures and social relations. While officials are working on closing it technically, the Nepal Telecom Authority said some internet service providers had already shut it down. TikTok, which has nearly a billion monthly users worldwide, didn't react to the ban immediately. It had earlier termed such a ban misguided and said it was based on misconceptions. Nepal's TikTok ban followed last week's introduction of a new rule requiring social media companies, including Facebook and YouTube, to set up liaison offices in the country. In 2020, India banned TikTok over privacy and security concerns following a military standoff between New Delhi and Beijing in a disputed Himalayan border region. Thank you, Melissa. We have some narratives on this story as well. The New York Times brings us Narrative A. While Nepal may find itself pulled between India and China, the concern isn't about misuse of sensitive data, but domestic harmony, as the toxic content on TikTok, including sexism and casteism, consistently stokes religious hatred and sexual abuse online and violence offline. The government had to shut it down. Narrative B comes from Quartz. Instead of regulating TikTok or holding it accountable, the government has abruptly shut it down, only to stifle freedom of expression. It shows Nepal's decision is an attack on free speech, not hate speech, as journalists and activists often use TikTok to express dissatisfaction over government policies. And the nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 2% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before the year 2024. I have a friend who's uh, in Nepal right now. She did the, She just finished the Everest base camp. Mm. And uh, and she said a picture before she did that climb just of the streets in Nepal, of this cute little like uh, small streets uh, with the mountains in the background. And it like my jaw dropped. I was like, I don't know what this place is. I'm going to do, but I need to go there. So she's been all over the world. She sent a bunch of pictures. But this is the first one I was like, I have to go there. That looks amazing. So what about it? Was it was it old timey? Was it was it was it quaint? Was it modern? Like yeah. what what about yes. it blew you away? Simple, like uh, so connected to nature, right? Because it's right there in the mountains, uh, and just just yeah, kind of simple and old, um, and beautiful, and, and so connected. Mm-hmm. I guess that's what it is. I'm not sure I really could put my finger on the essence, but it it hit me. Our final story, Kentucky UAW workers reject a Ford contract ratification. Here are the facts as agreed upon by ABC News, The Courier, Reuters, CNBC, and WDRB Louisville, Kentucky. Workers at two of Ford's plants in Kentucky have voted against a proposed four-and-a-half-year contract that sought to end the high-profile labor dispute between the American automaker and its United Auto Workers union laborers. The UAW Local 862 posted on its Facebook page that 55% of production workers voted against the ratification of the contract, while skilled trade workers, which include maintenance and construction employees, supported the contract at a rate of 69%. The Louisville Assembly Plant and the Kentucky Truck Plant employ 12,000 workers belonging to UAW Local 862, including 8,700 auto workers who went on strike for nearly four weeks before the deal was reached. The Louisville area chapter holds 20% of the 57,000 UAW members who are set to vote on the landmark union agreement. 
only 4,118 of the 9,000 eligible Kentucky truck plant workers voted, while half of the eligible Louisiana assembly plant voters voted. 54.5% of Kentucky truck plant voters said no to ratification, while 52.8% of Louisville assembly plant voters chose yes. The vote took place on Sunday between 9 a.m. and 10 p.m. Local elections will continue through mid-November. 70% of UAW workers supported the new labor agreement, but support has dropped to 65% after the Louisville vote. The record-breaking deal is being seen as a major loss for auto companies, with workers getting 25% salary increases under the terms of the contract, along with other benefits. Meanwhile, the UAW strike against the big three automakers, Ford, GM, and Stellantis, the latter the maker of Jeep and Chrysler, has been hailed as a victory for workers, but the tentative deal still requires a majority vote to be ratified and the strike to be resolved. Thank you, Scott, for the facts on that final story. We have an establishment critical narrative from WDRB Louisville. While the tentative agreement between Ford and the UAW may have some meaningful pay raises and benefits on the surface, the deal does not adequately compensate longtime employees for all sacrifices dating back to the 2008 financial crisis. Most of the pay increases only make up for the losses incurred by workers over the last 15 years, and the agreement also fails to take care of Ford retirees. Ford needs to step up its offer to end the strike for good. And The Courier brings us the pro-establishment narrative. Any Ford employee in Kentucky would be insanely unreasonable to reject the investment and benefits that come with the new UAW agreement. Employees will see a 25% increase in pay over the next four years, and Ford will invest billions into the Louisville-area plants to continue growth. Ford is already taking major losses and labor cost increases as part of the deal, and meeting any further demands just isn't possible. And the nerds have the final say today with the Metaculous Prediction community saying there's a 50% chance that at least 12.1% of American workers will be represented by a labor union in 2030. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Wednesday, November 15th, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. To find out more about Verity, visit our website, verity.news, or download our app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Melissa Topcher, inviting you to join us next time on Verity. 